reading this afternoon is from the Gospel according to Matthew. We'll be reading a portion in chapter 16 and then another portion in chapter 18. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13 to verse 20. Hear God's true and eternal word. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shalt be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man, that He was Jesus, the Christ. And then a few more pages into chapter 18. We begin reading in verse 15. We'll read 15 through 20 of Matthew 18. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man." And a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, That if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Thus far, may God bless the reading of His Word. And we open again God's Word in Matthew 16. We will begin with this passage, and we will slowly gravitate to Matthew 18. As we consider these these two points 
before us under, under the theme of Jesus building His church. In Matthew 16, we, we encounter the apostles and the Lord Jesus in a moment that, that is really monumental in the life of, of the apostles as they follow the Lord Jesus. It was the moment where Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And it's also the moment that Jesus reveals himself to be so. He agrees with their um, belief. He reveals that it was the Father who revealed it to them from heaven. It's with divine authority that they have come to understand he is the Christ. But then he also reveals himself as the builder and the protector of his church with clarity and with authority. The Lord Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 16, And I say unto thee also that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Lord Jesus here is testifying with great authority um, to whom the church belongs. He said, I will build my church. Not only he says it's his But then he also says, who will build it? It's not the apostles. It is not any of us. It's no human. It is Jesus. He said, I will build my church. And then how strong is this building of his church? How strong is the church? How resistant would the church be? The Lord Jesus said that it would be stronger than the gates of hell. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The phrase gates of hell is a metaphor for death. That death would come upon the church, would try to destroy it. Um, It has done so. Um, In our study of the book of Acts, we've been seeing death trying to destroy the church. There's been already the martyrdom of Stephen Saul is making havoc of the church and people are being scattered. There are people being put in prison. There will be more executions to come. And it's been the history of the church where death has tried to destroy the church. It has tried to prevail um, against the church. But since the church belongs to Jesus and since he protects it and he declares that he would, then Death will never destroy the church. And it hasn't. It has tried. It has done a lot of damage. If you look at um, the histories of persecution, it is true that wherever it's been more intense, it's done so much damage to the point where after um, everything settles, you may not find any more believers in certain areas because either they were killed or they fled. But wherever they flee to, the church prospers and they go to new lands where the gospel is even needed. And then those people come to hear the truth. And how 
can one person be part of the church? Death won't prevail against it. Christ is building it. How does he build it? And how does it grow? And when we read um, in verse 19 about these keys of the kingdom of heaven, we have this vision in our minds of a door that has to be opened. And when that door is open, people enter in. And if the door is closed, people can't enter in. And then we have this, this saying that we read both in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, that whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, verse 19, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And a similar um, phraseology we find in Matthew 18, and then in other places, and we'll, we'll consider this, um, especially in our second point. But what we understand then is that this, this opening and closing has to do with the reality of preaching, because that's how people hear the gospel and believe and enter in. Um, one passage that makes that very clear is Romans ten fourteen. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so our first point will be the nature and need of preaching. As we look at this metaphor of a door and these keys of the kingdom, we, we can see beautifully this picture that if the door is open, it is the preaching of the gospel that is being portrayed. So that if you respond to the preaching in the right way, you enter in. And then in our second point, we will look at the reality of that door being closed. And that brings to our mind the concept of church discipline. And that will be our second point, the nature and need of church discipline. So first, the nature and need of preaching. And before we go into this point further, I want to read um, in page 64 in the back of our Psalters from Lord's Day 31. And these questions and answers will, will in themselves explain very clearly what the keys of the kingdom refer to. Now you will note, even as you're opening in page 64, Lord's Day 31, I am, I am skipping Lord's Day 30, which concerns the Lord's Supper. We have done two Lord's Days concerning the Lord's Supper recently. And in a few weeks, we will be having the Lord's Supper again. So I'll be leaving Lord's Day 30 in the preparatory message in a few weeks. So we'll go back to the theme of the Lord's Supper for Lord's Day 30 in a few weeks. And today we'll be considering Lord's Day 31. So the first question, question 83, is what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? From the very passage that we have read. The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church by these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. Now question 84 and 85, we, we will see the reality that there's an element of the closing of that door even in terms of the preaching if the person does not respond rightly. So question 84, how is the kingdom of heaven open and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ it is declared and publicly testified 
to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. So let us consider this solemnity of the preaching of the word. The keys of the kingdom refer to the preaching of the word, first of all. We'll read the next question when we look at our second point. And you noticed what what I said. When you hear God's word, you hear the call to Christ. Every soul that believes and repents, God in His grace has opened the door and you enter in. Those who do not believe and repent, the door is closed. You need to believe and repent or else there's no entrance into the kingdom. No one can be part of the church unless he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us look at this nature and need of preaching. We'll we'll first look at the need and then the nature. And a few points regarding the need. Three points. We're going to ask the questions. Why, why, Why did they have to preach? And then... And then not just they, but us. Why do we have to preach? And then a question regarding how. How is it that this preaching is to be done? How do we proclaim? How do we share the gospel? And thirdly, what is to be the message? And so, first of all, why, why did they do it? And I'm, I'm speaking of they because I'm referring to the first ones who received this from the Lord. They're the ones who received the summons. But we need to understand that this command that was given to the church in its infancy was to be passed on to the very church today. And beloved, this is what's, what's astonishing when you think of it. The reason you are here, the reason you are a believer if you are one, and the reason you are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is because there has been an unbroken obedience to the command of Christ from that very day up to your very existence. It's by necessity true. You find someone who's out somewhere and has never heard the gospel, it means that the preaching of the gospel has not yet come to that soul. Maybe it's gone to some degree in that direction, but he still hasn't heard. And of course, there's the case of those who who have heard And they responded wrongly, but at least it's gone in terms of the obedience. But there are those who are still waiting. And and the obedience to this command that we will look at, where the commands are, has not arrived at that soul's yet. Now, of course, we're not to be blamed uh, regarding every soul that's around the world that has not yet heard. But could it be that it's your neighbor? Could it be that you have a very good friend who never heard the clear and, and, and... succinct, and even if it's just the most important points of the gospel. And you know that person. 
And you see these commands that we will see, these summons, are to go in that direction. And I can point to John 20, 21. The Lord Jesus there was commissioning His apostles in a very, in a very divine and authoritative way. Look what Jesus said, John 20, 21. Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. With the divine authority God sent me to this world, I with my divine prerogative send you. And these apostles went through. And, and this is the blessing. We're looking at Acts. We, we have, in a sense, Acts as in, in all the sermons that we've been hearing. And we, we have everything that's been happening before us. Peter in Pentecost. And then Peter and John arrested. And then the apostles arrested. And Stephen, just recently in our study, was, was stoned to death. And, 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 and the church was scattered. And so Philip arrives in Samaria. What does he do? He preaches the gospel. And, and what's precious, it's not just he preaching the gospel it says that those who were scattered about went everywhere preaching the word of Christ so this divine summons that Jesus gave to his apostles just went on from soul to soul there were some who died others picked on the baton and continued going until they died and it and it kept on going Verse 22 of John 20 says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 23 of John 20, this is what Jesus says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. It's the same phraseology, that phraseology of binding and of loosing, this authority that God gave to the church that, that has a mystery to it. But we will see in our second point that it's made very clear. And there's a process, there's a simplicity when we understand it correctly. There's a sanctification about it. Basically, Jesus is saying, I give you two duties. You are to go and tell the whole world about me. And when people respond and enter in, you have a responsibility for their souls. And those who are not living as they ought, you must, you, you must deal with the issue. And you must be an example of Christ to those who are not living like Christ. Because I want my church to be pure. I'm building my church this way. And so you see already the sense of privilege. Jesus is building His church, but He uses His church to proclaim the gospel. He uses His church to live a holy life and to be an example to those who are not living a holy life, hoping that they'll repent and be part of the church in the right way. So there's this command. We read John 20, 21. I can also read, of course, Matthew 28. It was the last words of Christ before He ascended into heaven was giving this very summons to the church, not just those disciples, but to the whole church. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That's the scope. The boundaries of this command is all nations. So there are no boundaries. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. How precious. Christ promises His presence. If we, if we go, 
He will be with us. There's the go ye therefore, and then there's the lo. Go and preach, and lo, I will be with you. So why did the apostles go and preach everywhere? Because Jesus commanded us to do this. And we see, like I just gave a brief review, and it's in our minds fresh from the book of Acts, we see that the apostles and the deacons, the installed men, took this seriously. Think of what it would mean for Philip to go and be a disciple, be, be, be an evangelist, knowing that his co-deacon, Stephen, was just stoned. It doesn't matter who's put in prison. It doesn't matter who dies. We will obey the summons to preach the gospel. So why did they do it? Because they were commanded to do it. And then secondly, how did they do it? Now, for a moment here, um, it's hard not to use Acts as our, as our illustration for this sermon because so much of what we're talking about we see there being lived out. If we go to Matthew, Acts chapter 8, in that very passage where Philip is there um, preaching Christ, we read in verse 4 that the, the ones who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, the King James says, preaching the word. The very next verse, verse 5 of Acts 8, we read, Philip went down to the city and preached Christ. So it's preached for both verses. And yet the the first verse, um, it's the word preaching. I, I mentioned this briefly in a sermon that really could be also translated evangelized. It, it has the, the word, it's like the verb for evangel. It's Evangelizo, which is the verb form for the good news, the gospel, the evangel. So they went evangelizing. The word evangelizing means to share the good news. So the people went around sharing the good news, and Philip went around preaching. And the word preaching here is more how we think of preaching. It's the word proclaiming, the word um, being, as it were, a one who declares. That's the word caruso. And so the people share, the preachers preach, and, and they, they did it that way. And so it shows that it's not necessarily the only way that we are to have the keys of the kingdom through the proclamation of the word, through, through someone who's ordained or a minister. We, we understand that, yes, it may be primarily that way, and that a minister may preach like Peter to 3,000 people. And so... It's a wonderful, practical way to have the word go forth in a a greater way. But we know that's not the only way that God does it. And our next sermon in Acts will be when Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. And that'll be a moment where this preacher will be now evangelizing one-on-one. And we see that in God's word showing how it can be um, in so many different ways. And, And it's also bringing the reality that no matter who you are, a father or a mother, a husband or a wife or children or young people, every one is to be in this summons of proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are one who can profess that you believe in Jesus, then you understand what it is that you have to profess and you should be able to articulate this to someone who doesn't know Jesus. Now just envision someone saying, I, I heard you profess your faith last Sunday. What does that mean? 
And so when you explain it to him, you are evangelizing that friend. And you can remember your, your confession of faith classes and you're saying, well, we're really confessing that we believe that God exists and, and that he has a son and that the son came to the world, that he died for sinners. And I'm confessing that I'm a sinner and I'm confessing that Christ, having died on the cross, pardoned all my sins because there he suffered in my place. And I'm also confessing that I receive His righteousness, not because I'm good, but because Christ is. When He died on the cross, He died to suffer for my sins, and all His goodness is imputed to me. All my badness was imputed to Him. We should be able to articulate something of this. And it can be through a sermon, and it can be through one-on-one. So how do they do it? Through preaching and through evangelizing. And then thirdly, what was their message and what should be your message? Now remember also when we were looking at Philip there, um, there were precious ways of summaries. It's like every phrase was a precious summary of what they were doing. We hear these phrases. They went everywhere preaching the word. Then we hear Philip preached Christ. Uh, that, That was the theme of his message. But of course he said a lot of things, maybe the miracles of Christ, maybe the death or the resurrection of Christ, but it says Philip reached Christ. You find this phrase, they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, of Jesus Christ. We here remember that they were baptized, so they must have taught about baptism. They, they must have said, you know, this baptism will not save you, but as you confess your sins and as you confess your faith in Christ, this washing of water on you will be a symbol that He has forgiven you of your sins. You want to be baptized? And they would say yes, and they would be baptized. And so they had to be taught all these things. They, they had to be taught that as they're being baptized, they will be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, we read Matthew. Jesus said, teach them everything I've taught you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Bible never says every single outline of all the sermons and all the catechism messages that they would have had. But they have these precious summaries that help us know what the message should be. Now, we can put to our minds, bring to our minds also, remember, Peter preached at Pentecost. Very much that sermon was explaining what the people were seeing. They were seeing something they never saw before. All these languages that were being spoken. There were accusations that the apostles were drunk. And he had explained, it had nothing to do with that. And he began with prophecy. He was explaining this which you are seeing was promised years ago and Jesus who was crucified said the Spirit would come. This is what you are seeing. Fulfillment of promise. And then he would also explain that that man whom you crucified is the long-awaited Messiah. And then remember when Peter was put in prison those two times by himself with John and then later with all the apostles Basically, the summary there was to say, you all killed the Messiah. Yes, his blood is in your hands. He died and he arose from the grave. We are witnesses. 
Let's, let's summarize all of this then together. What is to be the message that we are to give? Because we're commanded and we should evangelize or preach. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ was supposed to suffer. And you should repent and believe. Beloved, we we come then to the nature of preaching and we find this. Preaching is like nothing else. When you go to school, the teacher might reprimand you for certain things and might teach what math is, but that is not preaching. And we know that math is not preaching. But preaching is more than instruction and it's even more than declaration. Preaching has this at its nature. That you, as you hear it, take a stand. Preaching does not allow the listener to just be entertained. That's not preaching, that's entertainment. Preaching is not begging of you what your opinion is of the message. Preaching is not just giving you a history lesson about who Jesus was and and where he lived and what he did. That would be just information. And preaching is not just about God. It's also about you. You Go back to our sermon this morning. Think of, of what is happening. Simon is not learning like a math lesson. He, he is learning who God is, and he's learning who Simon is. Remember what Peter told him. Peter told him, Simon, I, I will now declare who you are. You are in the gall of bitterness. You are, you are tied to your sin. And put exactly what we're listening to. Jesus said that he would give this authority to the apostles that if you bind, it is bound. If you loose, it is loose. And remember what Peter said to um, Simon when he said that he was in the gall of bitterness, verse 23 of Acts 8, and in the bond of iniquity. See, Peter was de facto saying, Simon, since you want to use your silver to buy the gift of God, I declare that your sin is bound to you. It's just a matter of fact. Because you don't hate it. You have not confessed it. You had the power from Satan. Now you want the power that comes from heaven. And you're thinking your gold will pay for it. You are bound to it. Your sins are bound to you. And as long as you remain there, the door is shut. You see, church discipline, in essence, has been happening now to this man through the authority of this apostle. But that will be our second point. We're not there yet. But you see, the nature of preaching, listen to these words. It is declaration, but not just declaration. It demands a response. It demands a response Because God is speaking to you, not just about Him, but also about you. And see, what He says about Him is that He is holy and lofty and a judge. And He says about you, you have sins. That if you are to hope to be reconciled to Me, you must look to My Son, whom I have given to you, and trust in Him, and then your sins will be cleansed. 
and the doors of heaven will be open. Do you receive my son? Do you repent of your sins? See, wasn't this what we saw this morning? Peter told Simon, who was attached to his sin, Simon, repent. See, preaching demands a response. Simon, you cannot stay in that place. I'm I'm not just informing you, Simon, about your state. I'm informing you that the need of your heart is to pray to God for forgiveness. And, And again, the grace of God, because implied in all this, is that if that man were to say, Lord, forgive me, he would be cleansed. He would be pardoned. He would be forgiven. But as long as he remained in his sin... He was bound. He was tied. The doors would be closed. So the nature of preaching. This is the nature of preaching. One more thing about the nature. A fifth thing. It's persuasive. And when I say persuasive, the word I want to bring here is the word that Paul uses so much. I beseech you. Every time, boys and girls, when you hear Paul saying, I beseech you, I I want you to envision Paul on his knees with his hands up towards you, as it were, imploring. And when you go by one of those traffic lights and you see those men who are begging for some money because they are destitute of food or bread or a job, they're beggars. Let every beggar from now on Bring to your mind what a preacher is supposed to be. Begging for your soul's right response to the gospel. It's a humbling thing, but it's a necessary thing. And and I'll explain why. See, Paul was the master beggar. He says it again and again in his epistles. I beseech you. That's him kneeling saying, I beg of you. I implore, I am supplicating, I am pleading. Now why are we supposed to go down to that level that that would be humbling? Because we, as believers, not just a preacher, this is what you're to do to your friend who's not yet saved. Beg of him or of her that he would respond to the gospel. Why? Because you know there is a hell and you know there is a heaven. Now you have a friend that you love and you know he is in danger of that hell and he's missing out the glories of heaven and you will not beg? You see what I mean by it's necessary? And the more you learn of God's Word, the more you learn of this blessed heaven in this glorious place called God's own home. And the more you learn of the terrors and the sadness and the sorrow of hell, well, then the more you should beg. It's persuasive. It has to be. And the closer we grow to the Lord, the, the, the stronger our pleadings will be for our loved ones. And we need to work at this. We need to even ask, Lord, next time I speak to my friend, help me, Lord, to be full of love and full of sympathy. Help me to have tears for him or tears for her. Because I know of the hell that is a danger for that person's soul. And I know of the heaven that that person is missing out on. And he needs to know. He needs to hear. So this of the nature and the need of preaching. 
Now, as we go to our second point, the nature and need of church discipline. Let's, let's go back to Lord's Day 31, page 64, and now we'll read question 85, which regards the use of church discipline. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and open by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices like a way of life, inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. These would be the elders. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments. So the very thought that you would say you, you ought not to partake of the Lord's Supper because you're, you're living out in a sinful way without a repentant heart. That's already church discipline. And then it continues, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by Christ Himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment are again received as members of Christ and His church. So you notice through preaching, when you respond to preaching, heaven's gates are open. If you reject God's word, it is closed. And then church discipline, it's the opposite. Someone is in sin, that person is to be disciplined. So they leave the the visible church, at least, that we see it. And then when they repent and they want to ask forgiveness, they are welcomed back with open arms and the doors are open. So because, of course, of Christ's word of the keys of the kingdoms and and this metaphor of entering in in and, and being left out, is where we we have this whole understanding of the keys of the kingdom. Now let us speak then to the nature and need of church discipline. And this is where we we can keep still our finger opened in Acts 8. The illustration we have there is that Simon the sorcerer is a man who received instant church discipline. We, We will see even why that was permissible to be done. Um, in the case of Simon. But as we also have our Bibles open in Matthew 18, we will be going there now because that's where the Lord Jesus spells out step by step with clarity the need of church discipline. So the first thing will be the need and then we'll talk about the nature of church discipline. So first of all, the need. The need for preaching was first of all because Christ ordained it. Christ summoned His apostles and the church to share the gospel. You have a commission to share the gospel. Church discipline follows the same principle. There is a need to obey the Lord Jesus. He he said to His apostles, um, still in, in Matthew 16, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. See, there's an element of of command there that God is giving, Christ is giving to his disciples. And 
It's John 20 that we already read, verse 23, that helps us understand what what is being bound and what is being loosed. In Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus just says, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose will be loosed. It's a little confusing to understand what it would be. But John 20, 23, I'll read it again. Jesus said, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So here we have it understood that the binding and loosing has to do with sin. And we we studied not too long ago that, that one picture of forgiveness that is the closest to its own definition, and it is this word remit. Remember that Greek word aphiemi, that is the idea of letting sin go. Remember the Hebrew is the idea that you carry sin and take it. The Greek is that you just look at sin and say, go away, leave. It's the idea of being carried away, but in a very, um, not so much that you do it, you just let it go, see, remit. So it becomes the word for forgiveness. Some, some versions say um, in John twenty twenty three, whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whosoever sins you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. In what case this could ever be possible? It's when someone is repentant. You forgive. If they are not repentant, you cannot say, oh, your sins are gone. We can't say that because they are tied to it. See, the very sinner who insists, let's say, with adultery, and they want to live in adultery, they are the ones who are professing that they are tied to that sin. We don't have authority to tie them or untie them. We're just declaring the reality of of that existence. And so they are bound to it. That sin is not leaving because they are not repenting. And so when the church says, well, we do not forgive you, we need to understand this reality. It's not that we're not wanting to be loving and cleanse them. No, we're just saying, listen, you're living in your sin actively. It is tied to you. See, our authority is just revealing the reality that that soul is living. It's not that we have a power to bind or unloose. We're just declaring what we see. And the person is the one, in essence, who's judging himself because of his desire and his walk and his life. So in obedience to the Lord Jesus, we practice church discipline. A second need And it seems like these are the two major needs. We we do it because Jesus commanded, and we do it because it brings holiness to the church. Remember, I, I said that phrase, the responsibility of Christians and coming from church elders and deacons, and and you think of the fathers and mothers in the congregation, it's all of our responsibility to share the gospel that other souls may, may enter in. And when souls are in, it's also the responsibility of elders and deacons, and you think of fathers and mothers in the congregation, that each and every one of us has a responsibility for the holiness of the church. How I live my life before you, and how you live your life before others. Because, listen what Jesus said in verse 15 of Matthew 18, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, 
See, it has to begin with, it has nothing to do with, with church officers. It's talking about church life. So just like the sharing and the preaching of the word, it's every single one of us. The church discipline has to do with every single one of us. And if you have a brother who trespasses against you, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. See, when you do this, this principle immediately begins the holiness of the church. You see sin. Yes, it offended you. You go to that brother or you go to that sister. And, of course, the, the hope is that there will be holiness. Um, it says, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. What, what does that mean? It means that that brother has seen his sin, has asked forgiveness. You're reconciled. That's holiness. And so those are the two big needs of why we need church discipline. God commanded it. Jesus ordained it. And it maintains the holiness of the church. But let me go to the nature of church discipline. The last consideration in the nature and need of church discipline is the nature itself. And I have about four points here about principles regarding church discipline. The first thing we need to always keep in mind that church discipline is medicinal. You may have heard that, this word before. It's, it's, it's a word, of course, that we're using a metaphor from the medical word, world that you have medication and you take that medication in hopes of getting better. Church discipline is like a medication for a soul with hopes of that soul getting better. One, one of the passages is here. Jesus says, go with him. And if, you, if he has heard you, thou hast gained thy brother. And even as we read the other steps, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, one or two more. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And, and right there, you have this diagram that he, he may agree, he may understand. And so then you've gained your brother. He might not. So you see, there's a, there's a hope for holiness and medicinal purposes, but, but maybe it won't happen. But then you know what you do in verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, these groups of brothers, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, so see, even there, the same thing happens. If now the whole church is speaking to this brother or this sister, maybe there's hope of that person repenting. See, it's medicinal. We, we apply church discipline with the hope of holiness. And a passage that shows even in the starkest circumstances, Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5 very harsh words regarding a person's sin. And the sin is so public, and this is what we find even in Acts 8. It will explain why Peter does that. And he doesn't follow the steps that we've been studying. And this will be part of the principle when, when that can be applied like an instant rebuke, even publicly. It's when, of course, the sin is public. And this is what was happening in Corinth in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And let me read a few verses. He says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. It's supposed that this would have been like a stepmother to this man. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. 
That would be through church discipline. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the Spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Paul Paul is saying, whenever you have your congregational meeting, this is my vote. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my Spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This this becomes the phrase that Paul is using for church discipline. It's showing how serious it is that it's sending him back to the world. And what is the world? The world is under the principalities and powers that we've been seeing also in Acts 8. The world is under the world of wickedness. See, a person who does not want to live in obedience in the bosom of Christ, the very church, is in fact saying, I prefer to go back to the kingdom of darkness. So Paul is very, very realistic here. And he's saying, I deliver such a one unto Satan. What? For the destruction of the flesh? This implies there will be suffering. There will be affliction. But then he says, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. As as dark as it seems and as harsh as Paul seems, you see how Paul is thinking medicinally. He's thinking, yes, this may bring affliction to that person, but this may be what God uses to bring him or her to repentance. And then, of course, they return to the bosom of the church. And when Jesus Christ comes back, that soul will be saved. That's what Paul is saying. It is medicinal. It is always with hope. And then secondly, a second principle that is very important regarding church discipline. The the church through the ages. As you hear the history of the church, you can clearly see the church has erred greatly in this. Church discipline is not absolute. What I mean by this, it, it is not a divine declaration of condemnation. It is not a declaration of reprobation. It is not we as a church saying this soul has no hope. It is God declaring that you will never enter heaven. That is not what church discipline is. And I have said that the the church has erred. There, There have been some papal bulls that have been written to different souls all throughout history where the church felt itself as if it was God itself declaring who will enter heaven and who will not have any hope of heaven. And that is not what church discipline is. We just finished reading Paul. Even as he speaks of delivering that person back to the kingdom that it seems he prefers to live in, he says, for the saving of the soul. So Paul is supposing that there's hope. We're not declaring that there's no more hope. And if we go back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, when he goes to that position of telling the church, and if this person neglects to hear the church, look at the wording. This is very important. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 17, Let Him, the person who sinned and does not repent, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Let him be. Means this is how you consider him in terms of how you will relate to him. 
You are not declaring infallibly that He is not saved. It is not with this ecclesiastical authority and divine sanction that He is an unbeliever. We're we're not even knowing if He is or isn't. We're just considering. You see? And we put together what Paul said, who knows there will be the saving of the soul for, for, for the day of Jesus Christ. So even as we exclude someone, we need to maintain the reality that person might be saved, but is in that, in that gall of bitterness and blind, he might be completely unsaved. In whatever case, it's not up to us to define that. But the way we will relate to this person who insists in his sin is, you are like an unbeliever. Those two words, a heathen man and a publican, those were people who were in the realm of unbelief. They were not in the realm of the church. We, we need to always maintain that reality, right? There are people who are living right and doing everything right, but they might be unbelievers inside the church. But if you're going to be someone who wants to live in sin, then you can't be inside the visible church. You have to be on the outside. And we will relate to you as being in the outside. Now, I have had questions people ask, well, pastor, if, if this discipline comes upon me, can I visit the church? And I always say, absolutely, because that is what you need. You need to hear the gospel, and you need to respond the right way. By all means, don't stay away from hearing God's Word. You you will not be welcomed at the table. It's only who professes faith and who is living by God's grace as they ought to. But that table is there ready. The moment you repent and ask forgiveness, you're back in the bosom of the church. But until then, you need the Word. You can't be a Sunday school teacher. You can't be a deacon. You see, there there are, of course, some principles of of can't that are just realistic. But in terms of hearing the gospel, the person who's excluded needs it. And so we should encourage. People often ask, well, what can I do? Can I invite that person and have a meal with that person? Every case may, may, may be different because you're going to have to understand, I, I want to evangelize. I, I, I want to show the love of Christ. I think the key thing is never act as if nothing ever happened. Help that soul to understand they need to return by repentance and faith. In whatever way you can, you might meet with that person Yes, it might be over some coffee, but pour your heart out again. You need Jesus, and I'm praying for you. They need Christ. But let us always remember that when we declare that person is now excluded, we're not the ones who are establishing that there is no salvation. We can't do that. God's the one who sees the heart. But Jesus says, let him be unto thee. That's that's how we relate. But with the hope of Paul, like, like Paul was so encouraged, thinking there might be a salvation of the soul. That's the second principle. There's a third one. Discipline follows steps. Steps and principles. And basically the two principles are these regarding the steps. If it's a private sin, follow precisely the steps of Jesus one by one. 
If you see someone sinning, don't go tell someone else. Don't go to the elders who don't even know about it yet. See what Jesus said. If he sinned against you, it might be that he sinned somewhere else, but it offends you because you see it. You see that he was a thief or something. Well, you know it. Go to that person yourself. That's the first principle. Follow the steps. And Jesus is here speaking of private sin. You notice his emphasis to keep it private. You notice the love of Christ. He he doesn't want this person's sin to go to the church immediately. There's the second step. Well, then bring a couple couple witnesses. The mindset there is maybe this brother will, will now realize, wait, there are two more brothers who are telling me the same thing? You know, I thought it was a theological view that I was right and you were wrong. But now I see two other brothers. I respect them. I love them. And and they're also lovingly helping me realize my sin. Maybe now I should repent. You see, the whole emphasis is to keep it private. You're, You're doing this in love to the brother, not to expose him and make it shameful for him. And then even as we read that we tell it to the church before, it doesn't mean that that individual person, those three that went, will now just tell everybody in the church. No, you follow an order and you follow again the principle. We want to show love to this brother. Let's go now to the elders and talk to them. And there would be a phase where these elders and maybe with a few of these witnesses are now speaking to that person. And then there is, of course, finally, and as you, you've seen in our, in our forms of church discipline, that the elders get to a point where they tell it to the church general. But you see the emphasis of Christ before it gets to that. There's a, there's a phase and there's steps. And this is all to show love and show concern. But then there are public sins. And the two examples that I read, when Peter rebukes Simon in front of probably of many people, and then when Paul rebuked the Corinthians in this passage that I just read, and he said, listen, this sin is public. It's already been a long time. I want you to understand that I give my, my decision is that he should be excluded from the church. Why so fast? Well, because the sin was public. There was nothing to try to protect. He, these people are living openly in sin. And so you understand why this, this immediacy, as it were, to the discipline or to what should be rebuked to the person. So there are principles of when there's private sin. There's principles of when there's public sin. But of course, this still doesn't mean that you don't follow any order. Um, sometimes it's public, but not completely public. And this is where we need to be careful and show a lot of love still, hoping that it's not something that will be a rebuke to many others who don't need to know of a certain matter. But then one other principle in terms of steps. Um, Let me open in Luke chapter 6, verse 41. Um, Real briefly, this is that passage where the Lord Jesus speaks of the um, beam and the moat. The beam being something... um, in someone's eye, in the moat as well, but one being greater than the other. So Luke 6, verse 41. And why beholdest thou the moat that is in thy brother's eye, that would be just like a speck, but perceivest not the beam, that's something bigger, that is in thine own eye? 
Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam, and out of thine own eye, out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. This is in terms of step as well. When we put these words that Jesus says here, He's basically teaching that one person who goes to the one person, do this homework first. It's like this is a pre-step to what we read in Matthew 18. And then if he does this, and then he goes to his brother, and then that happens where he needs to bring witnesses, those two or three witnesses that will come with him have to do Luke 6, 41 through 42 homework in their own hearts. So this is, goes back to what we saw, that the need of church discipline is purity, holiness. It brings holiness not only of the brother or sister who might be in sin, but even of the people who go to rebuke because they're examining their own hearts and making sure they're not obscuring a sin that they're hiding, but concerned about a sin that is more visible in a brother. And then a fourth and last principle, and I'll end with this one. This is a precious principle. It's a principle to encourage us into something that really is so hard. No, no one really takes pleasure and shouldn't. If you take pleasure in rebuking a brother, then you shouldn't go. There's something very wrong going on. A true believer who's looking to the Lord, taking the beam out of his or her own eye, never likes to do this, to rebuke someone in their sin. And in Matthew 18, verse 20, the Lord Jesus gives what is, in a sense, the greatest promise because it refers to the greatest person. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Remember, in the preaching of the word, Jesus said, Go and lo. I will be with you always. And now, in the bringing discipline where it is needed, Jesus ends that whole conclusion saying, I will be there with you. When you preach or evangelize, you're not alone. When you rebuke and discipline and help someone see his or her sin, you are not alone. Jesus is saying, I'm with you. So as we exercise the keys of the kingdom, Jesus really is the one building the church because He is there encouraging, strengthening. We're there because He told us to be there. And He's saying, I won't leave you alone. I will be with you as well. So may the Lord bless us as we obey this, these summons that we evangelize, that we preach, and that we discipline, and that we receive discipline, and that we follow the steps, and that we are sincere and concerned. And may God be the glorified one. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for these summons. Lord, we think of the privilege that we who are mere humans to bear the greatest message upon our lips and upon our hearts. 
And we pray, Lord, that Thou would help us to see it as a great privilege. Help us, Lord, to be repentant of our own sins. As Jesus said, how how can we dare take a small speck of a brother's eye when we have a beam in our own? We won't even see clearly. And we pray, Lord, that Thou would help us see our own sins in this whole procedure. And we pray, Lord, that Thou in Thy grace and in Thy love would, would bring people into Thy church and keep them in, Lord. We pray through holiness, through repentance. We pray, Lord, that those who, who may be in need to repent and return, that they would do so. We pray that Thou would be the glorified one in all that we say or do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.